I married very young. I was just 16 when I got married. I didn't really have much choice in it. My family, as was our custom, arranged it. He was much older than me. In fact, he was really old enough to be my father. He was very respectable. He was one of the teachers of the law. So I was well off. I was provided with everything I needed. Life was very comfortable. But after a few years, he just seemed so serious and so boring. He was always going on about religious rules and the law. I just, I felt suffocated. I didn't intend to have an affair. But there's this guy next door who was the same age as me and I don't know, we just started talking one day. He made me feel alive and loved. I, I, I looked forward to seeing him. I couldn't wait to see him again. He'd been really good to me. Almost a father figure, really. I was one of the youngest teachers of the law and, and uh, most of the other teachers were older and he'd sort of taken me under his wing and mentored me. I think he saw in me the same kind of passion that he had. We loved the law. We were disturbed about what we saw happening around us. Some of the teachers of the law were, were just taking God far too casually. They didn't seem to understand the holiness of God. They didn't understand it was sin that had led our nation to where it was today. We needed to get serious about God again. I thought we'd kept it a secret. We were really careful. I suppose we just got careless. It's hard to keep anything a secret in a village our size. I knew it was wrong, but I just kept coming back. I was so angry when I heard that his wife was been cheating on him. He was a great man of God. He deserved better than this. And I saw how devastated he was. I'd never seen him like that before. I suppose it's understandable that you felt confused about what to do. But I knew the law was quite clear. She should be stoned. She had to go to stop the rot. This is exactly what was wrong with our nation. God would expect nothing less. They burst in in the middle of the night. I was mortified. It was the worst moment of my life. All these men staring at me. I could see the lust in their eyes and the disgust. It was like I was just a piece of meat to them. I grabbed a sheet to try and cover myself, but the shame. I was dying a thousand deaths. It's the worst moment of my life.
This was my chance to show some leadership to my colleagues. I told them this was a great opportunity once and for all to deal with Jesus. I mean, his teaching was so dangerous. He had people following him who were prostitutes and tax collectors and drunkards. They loved him, but it wasn't right. These people should not have been allowed to follow this man. I mean, he was leading them astray, telling them that God loved them. It wasn't right. And I knew this was the chance to deal with Jesus once and for all. The next morning, they dragged me to the temple and put me in front of Jesus. I'd heard about this new rabbi. I suppose I'd been preoccupied. I hadn't really been following him too closely. I didn't really want too much to do with anything religious, to be honest. We put it to Jesus. Should she be stoned? See, the clever bit was we'd trap Jesus. If he said stoner, then, well, people weren't going to love him anymore. He wasn't going to be some, a man of the people anymore, was he? It would wreck his reputation. And also, we could report him to the Romans. I mean, supposedly, <laughs> supposedly, we weren't meant to stone people. But if he said, no, don't stone her, he'd be breaking Moses' law. He'd be encouraging adultery. I mean, there has to be a consequence. It's okay to be saying you love everyone, but at some point you just have to draw the line. I really thought I was going to die. I'd heard the whispers, the rumours in the past of people who'd been stoned. It seemed like they were just waiting for Jesus to give the word. I thought he'd be like just all the other guys, but when I saw him look at me, I don't know, I, I tried to read the look in his face. He didn't seem angry. His eyes seemed to convey something, but it wasn't sexual desire. I know that look. It was something else. Jesus just stared at us for ages. Just stared. And then he bent down and he began to write in the dust. I kept demanding him to give an answer. He had to answer. Was he really serious about God's law or not? He couldn't sit on the fence. I mean, the Bible was black and white on this issue. What was his answer? He just kept looking at me. And then he bent down and kept writing. I couldn't understand what Jesus was writing. Girls didn't go to school, so I couldn't read. But I did notice the change in the atmosphere. They'd be yelling at Jesus to make a decision, but suddenly it had gone really quiet. I could feel the mood change, but I didn't understand why. 
I recognised some of my husband's friends that were there. Saw my husband too. I know those feet anywhere. I knew I disgraced him, publicly humiliated him. I knew he had every right to be angry. In fact, I thought he'll be the first one to throw the stone because he was always on about the law. I hadn't taken any notice of what Jesus was writing. But when he refused to say anything, I looked down. He was writing the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind. I I knew this stuff from a 12-year-old. I'd memorised it all. I knew it off by heart. I loved the law. That's why this woman had to die. We had to do the right thing. We had to stand up for truth. It was so quiet, it was eerie. I knew something had changed. But then Jesus said, Stoner. And I just uncontrollably began to shake. But then in the next breath, he said, But let those who have never sinned cast the first stone. Suddenly I remembered the times when I hadn't really loved God with all my heart. Don't covet your neighbour's house or ox. I thought about my neighbour's house because he had this fantastic house and I thought about how much I desired it. In fact, I remember the time when I thought about my, my mentor's wife. I mean, it's hard not to. She was so pretty. She was so beautiful. Of course, I hadn't done anything, but I'd thought about it. My husband was the first to leave. He just dropped his rock and left. And then his friends, one by one, they all started to drift away. The last one standing there was my, young, uh, was my husband's young protege. I could see in his face that he was really struggling. Suddenly some doubt crept into my mind. Who was I to stone When I'd done wrong, I hadn't kept law perfectly. But then I said, yeah, but that, that's not right. God is holy. This is so wrong, but... And I couldn't get rid of that niggle. And then I was even more confused. I mean, I saw my mentor drop his rock and he'd been so angry, he had every right to be angry. He was the one I looked up to. He was the man who loved the Word of God and I was just so confused. Jesus never said a word. He didn't even look at me anymore. He just kept writing. He'd finished the Ten Commandments and he was starting on Leviticus. Love your neighbour 
as yourself. And I just felt the anger leave me. Instead, all I could see was my failure. I went away confused. Suddenly I was aware of my own sin and it overwhelmed me. I prided myself on someone who kept the rules, but it was as if someone had looked deep into my heart. And it wasn't pretty. I had nothing. It was just me with Jesus. A few minutes ago, I'd expected to die. I'd been overcome with fear, but I can't explain it. Now I just felt calm. I was barely decent. I was sprawled out in a public place in the temple in front of this man, but I can't explain it. I just felt this peace. He asked me if anyone was left to stone me. It seemed a weird question. He could see that. As respectfully as I could, I said, Lord, there's no one. And then he said these words, and they're still seared in my brain. He said, well, I'm not going to condemn you either. Go and sin no more. As I walked away slowly, I looked back. I saw Jesus talking to the woman. I don't know what they said. I was too far away. I couldn't hear it. But I could see the look in Jesus' eyes of compassion. I knew that something had happened then. I I didn't understand what, but something had happened. I knew I'd been given a second chance by Jesus. I would have died that day if he had not said what he had said. I couldn't get in my head what had actually happened. I lay awake at night thinking about it. I remembered the way he'd looked at me, and I realized now what I saw in his eyes. It, it wasn't anger. It wasn't sexual love. It was this deep, pure love. I knew what I'd been doing was wrong. I knew it was wrong, but I sensed Jesus give me another chance. Does my head in. Doesn't seem right, but my friend, my mentor, and his wife are getting on really well. She left her lover and they seem happier than I've ever seen them. I mean, I can't respect my mentor anymore. I don't know how he could take it back. It doesn't seem right. It's like something in him changed that day as well. I don't understand it. keep thinking about those words that he said just before I left. I sensed him say that he believed in me, that he had a purpose for me even in my marriage. 
I never really felt that anyone had truly believed in me before. I'd felt trapped, but now something's changed. I've been following Jesus around wherever I can to listen to him. I know he's more than a man. It's like God himself has spoken to me. I'm not the same anymore. I can't sleep at night. I'm angry, but I don't know why. Why do I feel condemned when I wasn't the one that committed adultery? I feel angry that my mentor could take his wife back. I feel angry at Jesus. Who does he think he is anyway? I think I'm angry at myself as well, but I don't really know why. used a little bit of creative imagination, but uh, that's the story from John chapter 8. It's interesting because the story in virtually all translations is either at the bottom in small italics or it's in brackets. It wasn't that the early church leaders didn't think the story was from Jesus, because they did. Uh, It dates back very, very early. It's not that the church leaders didn't believe that the story was true, but they didn't want to put it in the Bible. They were scared of this story. They were scared of the implications of it. They thought it would encourage people to be sexually immoral. Sexual immorality was just as rife as it is today. So they argued about it and for years they left it out, didn't put it in at all. It scandalised them. First thing you can note about the story is that men were using women. Nothing's really changed. We don't hear about the man in the story. We don't know his story. The law would be quite clear that he also should be stoned. We don't know whether the man that she was having an affair with was using her as well. We don't know. Was she just some plaything on the side? We don't know. But it's clear the men in the story were using the woman to try and trap Jesus. They were not interested in her. She was just a pawn in their own story try and trap Jesus. Nothing's really changed today when we see the addiction to porn, the, new, the Me Too movement, we see men are still using women for their own ends. The second thing to note about the story is that 
Jesus' first inclination was not to condemn, not to judge, but to show compassion and forgive. It's interesting, the placement of the story, if you look at the context in John, you go in a little bit further, and, and Jesus says, you know, talking about how people viewed him, he says, you judge with your human limitations. Uh, I judge differently. But then he said, I, I didn't come actually to judge. I didn't come to judge. How quick we are to judge people. We don't know people's background. We don't know their story. We don't know how we'd react if we'd been brought up with their circumstances, if we'd been through their pain. We don't know what we would do. We don't know the effect it would have. We're very quick to judge. Jesus says we judge with human limitation. But Jesus says he didn't come to judge anyone. We live in a season of grace. There is a judgment to come. But it's not now. So why are we often so judgmental? Even of our fellow believers. The reality is that we're often like the Pharisees and the teachers in the story. We want to punish. We want to pass judgment. We want law. We want to stay in the Old Testament. Somehow it seems that we're blind to the fact that the law condemns us as much as anyone else. That we actually need God's grace as much as the person that we're condemning. We pass judgment because it makes us feel good about ourselves. I'm not as bad as that person. The implication in her is words, very simple words. The implication in his words is that he forgives. He's not saying it's all okay. The law stands. She has done wrong and she's in need of forgiveness. Sin is sin. He's not watering down sin. He names her behavior for what it is. God has given us a moral code. Sin is ex uh, sex is exclusively reserved for marriage. But he forgives her. But at the same time as forgiving her, he challenges her to live better. Go and sin no more. He believes in her. How often we don't believe in ourselves and we feel trapped. We excuse our bad behavior by saying, well, I had no choice. Jesus is saying, I am with you. I believe in you. You can walk a different path. You don't have to remain trapped in this lifestyle, in this behavior, in this sinful habit. I can help you walk a different path. By saying what he said, go and sin no more, he's saying, I believe in you. I believe in you. Maybe she'd never had anyone say that to her before. There are three people in this story. Just three people, really. <coughs> One is someone who's filled with shame, guilt, maybe regret. Certainly someone needing a fresh start. Someone grappling with condemnation. Someone needing someone to believe in her. Because her life, through this public humiliation, had been turned upside down. 
She was at the bottom of the bottom. The second person is the accuser. The one who's critical, condemning, the one who's wanting justice, the one who's pointing the finger, the one who's making the judgments. And the third person in the story is the forgiver. The third person is the one who is showing compassion, who's showing belief in a person who's at the bottom. Who do we identify with this morning? Which person do we identify with? And where is the church in this story? Where is the church in this story? May God bless this word to us this morning. Let's pray.